This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to this special Jamda on the Go podcast on nursing home reform. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host, and I'm excited to be hosting today's session with three of my favorite colleagues from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and each a renowned expert on post-acute and long-term care in their own right. Uh, this podcast is unscripted, and it should be a lively discussion on a very important subject, nursing home reform. So my guests today are Drs. Philip Sloan, Carl Christian Bergman, and Mike Wasserman. Our listeners certainly know Dr. Sloan well as co-editor of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and a distinguished faculty member in family medicine and geriatrics at UNC uh, at Chapel Hill. He'll be retiring from his role at JAMDA, where he's done an amazing job these last five years next month, and Phil, you'll definitely be missed. Uh, Dr. Christian Bergman is Assistant Professor of Geriatric Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. His clinical practice focuses on post-acute and long-term care medicine with an active medical directorship in two facilities, and he is a certified medical director. Uh, he's focusing on improving transitions of care, teaching the next generation of physicians and nurses, and focusing on patient advocacy for older adults in the community. Dr. Michael Wasserman is a California-based geriatrician and a nationally recognized leader in the care of older adults. He served as a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a framework for equitable allocation of vaccine for the novel coronavirus committee, and presently serves on the infrastructure work group for the National Advisory Committee for Seniors and Disasters. You may have seen Mike on Anderson Cooper or Rachel Maddow during the height of the pandemic, and he's been instrumental in getting some nursing home reform related legislation passed in California these last few years. So uh, welcome, Drs. Bergman, Sloan, and Wasserman. Thank you, Carl. Me too. Happy to be here. Likewise. <laughs> Great. All right. So the topic of this podcast is, as we said, nursing home reform. After the difficult times brought on by the COVID pandemic and the publicity, a lot of the negative publicity that surrounded the challenges presented by the pandemic in our long-term care settings, uh, there was a great deal of interest and buzz about nursing home reform in the public and in, in uh, legislative arenas and so on. Uh, many of you will recall that President Biden, in his State of the Union address this year, uh, for the first time any of us could remember, uh, actually talked about nursing homes and the need for nursing home reform. And then the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, released this year a 600-page report with numerous policy recommendations. Uh, and I know, Phil, you were part of that. Uh, and some of us also participated in, in some of that uh, really great work. So numerous other organizations, including AMDA, uh, are 
are actively promoting nursing home reform right now. And of course, to those of us who have worked in this care setting for decades, the idea that the system is broken uh, is really not news, right? Uh, so, So the purpose of our podcast today is to discuss what may and may not be possible in terms of nursing home reform in the U.S. and why, and, you know, maybe some of the things that our listeners can do to help, uh, help move us in the right direction. So I'd like to start by inviting each of our guests to briefly say a little bit more about who they are and take a couple of minutes to make some opening comments uh, about their sort of take on the big topic of nursing home reform. And let's start out with you, Dr. Sloan. Thank you, Carl. Um, You know, the first thing I would like to do, if it's not kind of breaking the rules, is to broaden our conversation from nursing homes to post-acute and long-term care settings in general. Good. Because, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about one without talking about the others. And in doing so, I want to acknowledge that most of long-term care is not done in nursing homes. Majority of people needing long-term care, you know, supportive care, are getting it at home. And those who get it in residential settings, there are now more in assisted living than in nursing homes. This is because of growth of assisted living and the increased amount of post-acute care done in nursing homes. Yeah. Now, as for nursing homes themselves... I kind of like to put a, a couple of thoughts right up front. One is to think about what nursing homes will be like in 10 to 15 years, you know, because as being on the National Academy's task force, you know, we didn't really talk about that. And with the continued growth of home-based care and assisted living, I think the nursing home of the future is going to be primarily a place that cares for people with advanced dementia and persons with very severe physical limitations, you know, like advanced Parkinson's disease requiring two-person transfers and assistance with all ADLs. You know, that has a lot of implications for service delivery and design. The other point I wanted to make is to acknowledge that the potential for change is limited by the condition and prognosis of persons receiving long-term care. You know, we've done lots of studies about, you know, um, facility factors versus resident factors in terms of, you know, affecting outcomes and the resident factors always trump, you know, the facility factors contribution is relatively modest. You know, yes, you know, we have more sophistication in terms of medical and nursing management, but the people are sicker than they were before and the basic conditions that present themselves, many of which are quite tragic and irreversible, really haven't changed much over the last 40 years. So I can't imagine that things are going to be that different. So we have to be realistic. Right, right. Well, and all this, you know, hospital at home, sniff at home, there are basically going to be people, there are always going to be people that need, uh, you know, need this kind of a care setting. So, yeah. Um, All right. How about you, Dr. Bergman? Thank you uh, both. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity. I would just say, I think, um, I'm going to talk on nursing home reform at the front lines. And uh, the point I want to make is that nursing home reform is only possible, true nursing home reform, if the physicians, the providers that are at the bedside are part of the conversation. Uh, And we need to do a better job communicating with the public um, in regards to engaging the public interest 
and campaign with aid of organized medicine. Um, much of nursing home reform done by the families and patients themselves may be episodic in nature and um, dependent on areas where there's a lot of engagement. And so we need more consistent health care uh, reform, health system reform backed by physicians, providers uh, with a public interest. So uh, I'll start there. I'll turn it back to you all. Philip, since you opened the door, I'm going to barge right through it. Um, it, it you know, I, <laughs> my work with the National Advisory Committee on Seniors and Disasters has put me in a position where I'm trying to define long-term care as older adults with ADL needs um, living either at home or unsheltered. I think we need to look at those folks all the way through group homes, memory care, assisted living and nursing homes. So I, I, I sort of take your uh, assisted living and, and, and raise it to uh, home and unsheltered individuals. Um, and I, I think that really helps us look at a problem from the perspective of geriatrics and how we bring geriatric care to vulnerable older adults. I, I will say when I was a medical student many, many years ago, people were in the hospital for four to six weeks and they really didn't go to SNFs. And with the advent of DRGs, we now, you know, folk, send folks uh, directly to the hospital, directly to a SNF, sometimes even uh, disregarding the hospital. And the irony of that is the financing of skilled nursing facilities has hardly changed in the last 30 years, while hospitals continue to get the same amount of money, but we've shifted the location of care, all while trying to care for this very, very complex population. So the, the one perspective I want to take on this, kind of from a business perspective, is I like to look at nursing homes as a three-sided scale. And I look at the three sides of the scale as finance, operations, and clinical. And I believe strongly that all three sides of the scale must be evenly balanced. And I would challenge all of us that whatever system we develop, if we don't give the clinical side of the scale equal balance to the other sides, all efforts for reform will fail. Uh, thanks, Mike. And I, I think uh, many of us who have served over the years as a nursing home medical director or chief medical officer are acutely aware that in many instances, we aren't the ones that get to determine where the finances go. And uh, so uh, maybe things are not exactly as we would have them in an ideal world or if we were the ones, uh, uh, you know, writing the checks and so on. So. So, um, all right, next I'm going to ask our panelists to dig a little bit deeper into some key topics around nursing home reform. And the first one is going to be about our goals. So um, I'd like you to tell our listeners, uh, Drs. Bergman, Sloan, and Wasserman, uh, what is it that you'd like to see as the key goals of uh, sort of big uh, nursing home reform efforts in the U.S.? And uh, we will start with Dr. Bergman. I think uh, the key goals, I mean, always imagine yourself standing at the bedside. I think uh, the goal of a nursing home uh, is to improve the care and quality of patient care for the individual residents. So <clears throat> for me, I think that to achieve true uh, nursing home reform, 
there are two things that are important to me as I stand at that bedside. One is, you know, how are we supporting the nursing leadership and career ladders? I think um, there is tremendous opportunity. We all know uh, amazing nurses and nurse leaders who have contributed immensely to this area. There isn't always a clear, defined um, career ladder within the nursing realm for those operating in post-acute and long-term care. So <clears throat> I think that needs to be revisited in terms of um, goals because to deal with staff turnover and things like that, I think career advancement is important. The second part, I think, as a goal is... Uh, how are we disseminating educational findings, latest in change management and implementation science? How are we turning those binders to policies and procedures into actual uh, change at the bedside? I think there's a lot of work that can be done in that realm. Um, obviously has been highlighted by the QIOs over the years, but can be further enhanced um, with partnerships from the administration, nursing home, medical director, and the uh, director of nursing. So I think we know what needs to be done. I think just want to focus on the implementation and the career and educational support to achieve those goals. Thanks. Yeah, great. And, and before we go to Phil, I, I mean, I think we all have to acknowledge that we have a huge workforce shortage on our hands. And, uh, you know, geriatrician, workforce shortage, physicians, and so on, but more acutely, uh, direct care, you know, nursing staff, nursing assistants, and so on. And how do we how do we resolve that? I mean, that has to be a goal uh, for sure. Um, yes. So, uh, all right, let's, uh, Dr. Sloan. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was so glad Dr. Bergman went first, because, you know, he talked about standing at the bedside, looking at the resident and kind of having his thoughts mm -hmm. and you know i've been doing this for 40 some years you know and i turned 70 a couple years ago so i'm not at the bedside anymore i'm in the bed and so not think, yet not yet my friend no no no. but when i think about nursing home quality i think about what it would be like to live there to be there and so my single best indicator of quality is what I like to live in a typical nursing home. And by that, I mean a three-star, for-profit, part of a chain nursing home, because that's where we've done a lot of our research, a lot of our work. I've been in hundreds of them, you know, and they, they're they full of people who are dedicated, wonderful, doing the best that they can. But it's still a hard sell for me. And so, you know, that's that that's my indicator of quality. And, you know, I just wonder... How far we can move that needle? Yeah. So I, I, I want to look at this out of the weeds. Two major goals. The first is full transparency, uh, particularly how all revenues are spent. We put a lot of money into long-term care, and we really need to see where every dollar of that goes before we can actually get in the weeds about how it's spent. That's number one. And then the other, to build on what both um, Phil and and Christian said, I think we really have to also look at it with a complete understanding of the needs of these highly complex individuals. And so I'm always talking about following the geriatrics approach to care and worrying that, you know, those of us in the field of geriatrics might already have become obsolete as, as and, and our voices aren't being heard as we look at how to care for these very vulnerable folks. 
Yeah, you know, that also resonates back to something Christian said about sort of um, being change agents and how, how do you change things. And I think uh, many of us, just as far as simple clinical things like not uh, throwing antibiotics at asymptomatic bacteria, it's so difficult to affect change, um, you know, on a, on a macro level or a micro level. And I, I don't have a good answer to, to how to do that. But I think if, if we want things to change, I love what you said, Phil, and I'm not a spring chicken myself. Um, I, I always tell people, when I'm giving like presentations and so on, never make your kids promise you that they'll never put you in a nursing home, right? Because that's a really toxic thing to say. And but it, it kind of reflects, uh, you know, nobody really wants to be in a nursing home. And wouldn't it be lovely if you know somehow with? And I'm not a big fan of the 600 pages of regulations, uh, but if somehow we could make places, you know, like kind of like greenhouse and some of these things that make. Uh, facilities seem more home-like. Uh, that to me would be uh, an absolute goal. Um, so, all right, let's uh, talk a little bit. There, there have been some specific issues that have surfaced uh, through some of uh, the work from the National Academies and others uh, about uh, policy recommendations that uh, would impact uh, nursing home reform. And uh, I'd like to hear what our panel has to say about each. So. Let's start out with uh, uh, increased Medicaid funding combined with uh, better ownership, disclosure, transparency, and what Mike was just talking about, uh, how the money is getting spent. So uh, go ahead and just uh, chime in. It's necessary. Period. <laughs> we got to do that. So another, things aren't going to change if we don't, you're saying? Well, the thing about it is, and the nursing homes are so eager to get Medicare that because Medicaid is not adequate. So we need to have some increase in Medicaid funding. It's just that the, the, the thing that drags it down is the fear that the owners are siphoning and, it into. You know, on that, Phil, I think one of the challenges is the way that the nursing home industry has just been developed from a structural perspective. Um, the, the, the land that the facilities are on is not owned by the facility. It's not part of the operation. It can't be leveraged that way. Compare that to hospitals, which often historically have actually owned their own land, um, also have more been nonprofit. I think there's some, some structural fundamentals. Now, the irony of this, I actually think we're seeing hospitals and hospital systems and their business structure becoming more like nursing homes. So I'm actually really worried that we're going full stop in the wrong direction in healthcare in general, which I think is an even broader fundamental issue. Boy, I hope you're wrong about that, Mike. I mean, when you think about the fact that the the real estate holding companies, there's no accountability for it. You know, they may be squeezing the the, the operators uh, for for every penny and and sort of causing them to skimp on services, and yet there's no accountability there. Uh, and that's a, that's a hard thing to to solve, right? I mean, in, in a capitalist system where it's all about profits. Um, it's it's kind of difficult sometimes. You know, to do that's the right why I thing. think transparency is so critical. I, I think we can go blue in the face on every other recommendation we have, but if we don't, if we can't see where the money's being spent, it becomes a, a completely impossible task to try to figure out how to improve the system. 
Yeah. Others? Just uh, just to add a comment here, wanted to hear the panel's comments around value-based purchasing uh, and uh, provider networks taking on increasing risk. Um, you know, obviously, CMS is trying to move this needle. It is incredibly difficult and a decade-long process, likely, that started over 20 years ago. But... The question is, how is how does Medicaid uh, successfully transition into more of a value-based purchasing and for provider networks to take on more of the risk? Any comments, well, thoughts? I, it's one of my favorite topics, and uh, I, I hope I don't uh, uh, come out the wrong way here. I, I think that the, the concept of value-based care is primarily a political comment or political concept that public officials and politicians love to say, we need value, we need value, but they wouldn't know value if it hit them in the face. And I don't think we have a lot of good measurements for value. And a lot of the studies that have been done on value-based programs have not shown benefit. And so we, we are often are really working around the edges when it comes to value rather than putting it truly front and center. So I, I am a huge skeptic of value-based approaches. I don't, I don't fundamentally disagree with the concept, but I think the concept has been really abused. Um, and, you know, I worry if we keep going down that path, we will also never achieve the value that we seek. Thank you for saying that. You know, I was thinking the same thing. To me, value is just when they say value, they mean the metrics, you know, and a lot of the residents and their families could care less about the metrics. They want a good experience. And so that's the challenge is what is value? Yeah, and I, I'm a big fan of, you know, the concept also of uh, value-based uh, medical practice, right? And um, I think if you try to not look so much on the costs of care, but um, what is of best value to the patient, I think things like that we see our ACOs or Medicare Advantage uh, programs allowing for, like somebody going to the emergency room from home and going directly to the nursing home without a three-day qualifying stay, or allowing a, a nursing home resident to be treated, you know, a long-term resident to be treated in a skilled way uh, with increased reimbursement. I mean, those things make sense. You're creating less transitions of care for the, you know, uh, potential areas where there's going to be errors and so on. So that side of value-based care, I really, I believe in strongly. So bending the systems to be more responsive to the, the needs and the outcomes rather than the rigid rules. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Join AMDA in Tampa, Florida, March 9th through the 12th at PALTC 23 AMDA's annual conference. Register and book your room within AMDA's room block by November 30th, and you'll receive the PALTC 23 conference recording package for free. Visit PALTC.org for more details. And now back to our podcast. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, something that might be a sore subject for some, especially within the industry, and that is mandatory staffing ratios. So numerical uh, mandatory minimums, and many states already have that. Uh, we, we're now at 3.5, 2.4 
meaning 2.4 hours has to be nursing assistant in California. Uh, but uh, there's some evidence that, uh, you know, and it depends on how reliable you think that evidence is, that 4.1 is really uh, sort of should be a floor. Uh, and so that may be the number that CMS comes out with. Uh, it may, may not be, but let's just talk a little bit about that. And is it going to help? And I want to blow this discussion up because I, I think we, by by engaging in this discussion, we are providing fodder for those who don't want to have this discussion. Okay. And, and there are a lot of nursing homes around the country that don't clearly do not have even minimum appropriate staffing. You've got, you know, residents who have huge ADL needs that are, you know, 20 of those residents are covered by one CNA. You have folks with a lot of complex issues that don't have a full, uh, a 24 hour RN on the premises to evaluate them. I continue to think that the place for this discussion is on what's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, say it's okay not to give people antibiotics because we just don't have enough around for folks who need them. And to say we we shouldn't have, you know, the appropriate necessary staffing because we don't have the staff around, to me is the same thing. I look at this very clinically. Let's focus on doing the right thing and get the discussion away from why we can't. Well, we better make the job more desirable mm. to get those people. You know, well, I mean, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see minimums probably. So, uh, let's, yeah. Christian, did you have something to add? Just a quick comment. I, I think, um, if you haven't looked at the Virginia Joint Commission on Healthcare Staffing Study, they gave eight different recommendations on how policymakers could tackle this issue of staff ratios. <laughs> It's very controversial. I would just say to Mike's point, one of the options was to look at the needs of the residents and matching the needs of the facility with an appropriate staffing level. Um, and that was unfortunately voted down by the policymakers predominantly because they didn't really know how are we going to measure the, um, the needs of the residents uh, in a neutral manner uh, and then subsequently enforce that. It was much easier to enforce it based on case mix index or DRGs or other metrics that they already knew. Um, and so it was complicated, but I would like to see a vision in the future where instead of an absolute number, the needs of the residents are accounted for and we're able to appropriate meet, meet meet their needs. Yeah, I mean that raises the complexity of the the, the formulations and whatnot, but uh, probably would be more uh, more balanced than sort of a one size fits all. Uh, I mean, clearly a facility that's got a bunch of uh, fairly ADL independent uh, dementia residents is going to be a lot different from somebody who's got trachs and IVs and uh, you know G tubes and all that kind of stuff. So, well, it'll be interesting to see where CMS goes, and I hope some good comes of it. I, I do. I mean, it's pretty clear that better RN, you know, more RN hours definitely impact quality and uh, 
certainly we'd all agree that there's a level at which for any facility, if you have less than some set amount, you're not going to be able to provide optimal care. Um, the one last thing, and this is, I know our podcast is going to be a little bit longer than usual, uh, but it's, it's an excellent discussion. Uh, what about the, the regulatory system? What about survey reform? Uh, is that something, is that a, uh, a reasonable, plausible, practical goal. I, I, I would love to see it. I, I just, um, I feel like the system is so broken. There's no evidence I've ever seen that this punitive process really works. Uh, obviously, we need to have some sort of enforcement uh, out there, but uh, what can we do along those lines? Any comments, panelists? Well, you know, being on the National Academies uh, Committee, one of the things that I really came to appreciate is that the purpose of survey is to find the bad apples. And um, there needs to be some other process, some other organization, some other thing that gets a little better funding than QISOs have been done, I mean, have been receiving, you know, that can help the low-performing facilities and communities, you know. And so the survey process, you know, does what it's intended to do, I think. Now, I worry um, because, you know, I just love some of the approaches of the Pioneer Network facilities, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of dedication and leadership. But, you know, that kind of leadership is rare in long-term care, particularly in res low-resource settings. So how do we bring in leaders who will really be leaders, you know, of, you know, culture change and, you know, resident-centered care. Um, tough yeah. issues, but things I'd love to see happen. So I'll make a little controversial statement here. I would suggest that the nursing home industry likes having an ineffective survey process that they can complain about and that there really is no desire to really improve things. I will say where I think the improvement could be achieved is through the ombudsman program. When you when you look at other industries, historically, ombudsmen are there to advocate not only for the customers, but for the systems. So when you look at the banking industry and ombudsmen, they look at broken systems and make recommendations on fixing them. I, I actually think that the ombudsman program is way under-resourced and underutilized based on where it is statutorily focused. So I, I think that the ombudsman approach is an interesting approach to this. I, I think that if and when all the parties are willing to look at the survey process and you get you got the feds, you got the states, you got the industry, you got the clinicians, I would love to see AMDA facilitating that discussion, lock everyone in a room and don't let them out until they come up with a solution. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're wrong about the industry, Mike. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, I, I hope I know. You know, it's easy to sort of uh, staff up and try to, um, you know, have your mock survey and then, you know, take your lumps and do your plan of correction and then go back to business as usual. But I think facilities, you know, in their hearts want to provide better care. And that's it's a huge waste of time. And I, I agree with you, Phil. You know, it's it should be the survey process should identify uh, poor performers, and there should be sanctions and, and consequences to that. But for facilities that are good performers, do they really need to have the survey team coming in there, you know, uh, with that level of frequency? It just seems like a big waste of resources, but that, that's just my opinion. Yeah. No, I'm just going to say, you know, if a bad performer is a bad performer, you know, 
I'm not sure that, you know, punishment is always the right thing. You know, sometimes it's the right thing, especially if the owner is really ignoring things. But, you know, if there are staff that are under-resourced, you know, it'd be nice to help them. You know, some need help and some need punishment and figuring out which needs which is something I'd like to see us do better. Yeah, true. All right. Well, let's move on. I uh, want to spend a little bit of time just talking about some of the barriers to nursing home reform. And uh, a few of these have been brought forth as being especially critical. Uh, So I'll throw out a couple. Uh, The profit versus nonprofit status of the majority. Sorry. The profit status of the majority of nursing homes these days in the U.S. Uh, Leadership limitations. Workforce recruitment and retention, uh, the level of resident morbidity, unrealistic public expectations, and then this sort of general disinterest on the part of the general public that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, at least temporarily, nursing homes sort of took center stage uh, and now it's sort of fading back. So let me uh, ask each of you. Uh, to uh, weigh in on those barriers. And uh, let's start out with you, Dr. Bergman. Just in general, uh, unfortunately, staff turnover remains one of the major barriers to achieving better quality of care at the bedside. And it's not just the the frontline nurses or direct care workforce. It's also ownership, uh, consolidation, changes in ownership, um, hurt administrative relationships between healthcare systems and nursing homes. Um, and so I think we need to try to um, focus more on the transparency of ownership. Um, profit status should be a component of it, but uh, workforce stabilization in all of healthcare remains one of the major barriers that we can't overlook. Um, so excited for solutions. Thanks. Great. Uh, Dr. Sloan, how about you? You know, I could stay in a hotel in Chicago or, you know, New York and spend considerably more money for a stay in that hotel than a nursing home gets on a day-to-day basis to take care of a resident. And so we have to have our expectations realistic, you know, and uh, we, we can't throw too much money at the system or at the situation. But I do worry that as a country, we're not going to be willing to implement the changes needed to really reform nursing homes because it will require money. Yep, a lot of money. Dr. Wasserman? You know, Christian alluded to it, and it's one of my favorite topics, which is leadership. And I I think weak leaders are easily manipulated by the financial pressures. Strong leaders, when they focus on quality care, give us some of our best facilities and Mm -hmm. are are financially successful. So I I really think, and by the way, the, the literature is very clear that good, solid leadership is associated with lower turnover. So I, I think leadership, a leadership focus uh, could provide a really important counterweight to all the other pressures. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of barriers and I, um, you know, I'm a kind of a glass half full person and I, I truly hope that we're, uh, you know, taking some steps in the right direction. And I mean, there's other things we didn't discuss, just the whole kind of duality of the population that we serve, right? There's the post-acute population in nursing homes, and then there's the, the long-term care. And uh, do they belong in the same building together? Uh, should there be a different sort of a care setting? 
um, assisted living. It's a whole nother kind of wild, wild west. Uh, maybe a, a little bit of interchange on that before we wrap up. <laughs> That's a topic for a whole other discussion, Carl. It really is. You know, Carl, I, I want to challenge all of our colleagues. You know, one of the things about the work we do in, in post-acute long-term care is, you know, we care. We care about these very vulnerable folks. And I think sometimes because we care so much, we don't really get into the muck of fighting for doing the right thing. And and I think that's I think that's where we need to, we need we need to be willing to fight for quality care, um, and recognize that there's a lot of you know the what I like to call the healthcare industrial complex that has a lot of money flowing into it that just doesn't want to see anything change, whether it's nursing homes or health insurance companies or even some of the hospital system these days. So I, I think we just got to be ready and willing to, to uh, you know, take that fight on. You know, I was thinking the same thing, you know, that adv- advocacy – is needed by professionals like ourselves, you know. And the thing is, the busier you are, busier you are with patient care, with resident care, you know, the harder it is to find time to do something that's unpaid. But advocacy at the policy level, the local level, you know, if we could each dedicate an hour or so a week, perhaps over several years, maybe we would build enough momentum to help things change. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot to be said for advocacy. And Dr. Bergman, you've got a whole uh, committee or work group at AMDA that's uh, uh, doing kind of state-based advocacy. We've got some federal legislation pending uh, that will at least help us uh, uh, identify nursing home medical directors. Uh, uh, how's your work going with that work group? Yeah, I think in, in short summary, the state-based policy and advocacy subcommittee that has become part of AMDA now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Only thing I'll say is there's value to organized medicine. There's value to sharing resources and making the work easier and more efficient for those that are interested in advocacy on the front line. So we're continuing to enhance policy um, procedures that can help, you know, state uh, chapters or affiliates to set up their own public policy uh, there are things that we can share at the federal level. So organized medicine and uh, including our other uh, medical society colleagues uh, can be helpful in a, a useful way of collaborating moving forward. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the work that you, all of you are doing there. And I, I'm on my way to the AMA interim meeting uh, this coming weekend, and uh, they've been supportive of a number of our initiatives. And uh they do have a lot of clout, and uh, I would just encourage our listeners, uh, kind of what Phil was saying, I'm not sure if you have an hour a week or not, but at least uh, make contact with your your state and your federal uh, legislators. Just, uh, uh, you know, call your congressman's office, maybe set up a meeting with their healthcare staffer, get to know them, be, you know, volunteer to serve as a resource for them if they uh, get calls from constituents. and. 
cultivate a relationship uh, that really can go a long way. so, well, great, great discussion. I think uh, we are running long over, and I'd like to just give each of our panelists the opportunity to kind of give a little wrap up uh, uh, what they think are the most important points for our listeners. So let me start out with Dr. Wasserman. You know, I just want to wrap up by saying we focus on doing the right thing, focus on quality and focus on caring. And that'll give us our best chance of making a difference. (laughs) That was short and sweet, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, All right, uh, Dr. Sloan. And I would just say, let's, you know, not get so wrapped up in the day-to-day work of the important work of taking care of residents and kind of doing our jobs to not have some involvement at a higher policy level, because we need to do that too. Thank you. And I hope I hope our listeners will will take heart in that. Now, you know, we're all super busy, right? We, we've got clinical practices. Yeah, it's, it's hard, but it's it really um, you can touch a lot of lives that way, potentially. And uh, even though you may feel like you're beating your head against the wall sometimes, um, I, I don't know, it feels like a good fight to me. Uh, all right, uh, Dr. Bergman. Bring us home. Yeah. Last comment I'll just say is we, we have mentioned a lot about caring for our residents and others. Don't forget about the staff. Um, I think it goes a long way if a physician or nurse practitioner just uh, goes up to a CNA and says, you know, how's your day going today? You know, what's uh, what's on your mind? Um, you know, we have, these are professionals. They have their own lives and challenges, and it goes a long way as a community and a network to help with work staff shortages and retention. If you can just reach that human level and talk to people, um, and, you know, I think that goes a long way. So don't be afraid to just say, hey, what's going on, you know, or follow up with somebody. Uh, it's, it's helpful to connect on a human level. That is a great idea. And I think, you know, reminding us of, of our humanity is, is a great way to wrap up. I think, you know, when a, a nursing home resident tells us uh, about how much they appreciate uh, what a CNA has done for them, uh, that's a nice thing to also share with them. And I like to bring Costco uh, chocolate covered almonds or, or raisins in. Um, I hope that helps morale, too. It might not help the waistline, but... Uh, Anyway, um, well, thank you so much, uh, all of you. And thanks to our listeners for uh, hanging on to this this podcast. It's quite a bit longer than our usual. Uh, So that's going to wrap it up. Uh, References for this podcast. I'm not sure there are any, but uh, uh, they could be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.